a study in the Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, a part of the prayer that occupies verses 15 to 19. But it is our custom at these meetings also to read a portion of Scripture together. And those of you who are listening to this recording may like to share. If so, will you switch off for a while and read with us Hebrews chapter 9. Just a word or two with regard to this Hebrews, the ninth chapter. I don't know whether you observed in verse 4 that it says that in the holiest of all we have the golden censer and the ark of the covenant. Now strictly speaking, when we have the tabernacle described in the book of Exodus onwards, there's no golden censer inside the holiest of all. There's nothing there except the ark and the mercy seat. And the altar of incense is outside in the other part of the tabernacle. Now instead of rushing in and saying, well, Paul made a big mistake, the point is this. He says, you see, Christ is now at the right hand. And there's no longer an altar of incense here upon earth, but he's taken the censer in with him. He's already making the, tab- making the tabernacle, as it were, conform to the teaching which belongs to Christ, not making Christ conform to it. There's no mistake. He's left the altar outside, but he's taken the censer in. Of course, he, he would have taken the censer in, the priest, in the ordinary way, but never a word said about that until we get here. And this is the epistle where the high priest is not ministering upon earth, but has gone into heaven itself. And then in verse 8, after describing all the furniture of this this tabernacle, the Apostle says in verse 8, the Holy Ghost this signifies. Now that is either false or true. If it is true, all these types were under the inspiring power of the Spirit of God and they were all intended to point to Christ. The Holy Ghost this signifies. And if we say no, well then, we've got to do something with regard to the question of inspiration. We can't go through the whole of, the, uh, of this chapter because it's not our subject. But our subject will refer to this chapter when we are considering the bearing of Ephesians 1, verses 18 and 19 upon a passage which comes in this uh, chapter 9 of Hebrews. So shall we now turn our attention to the epistle which is our study, the epistle to the Ephesians, and pick up, if we possibly can, where we left off last time. You will see that the chart we are using is one that we used at the beginning of this series, setting forth the whole of the epistle like a, a large house, having two wings, one on either side of a carriage drive, with several rooms in each wing and a central tower. Or that is only visualising the way in which the teaching of the epistle is plotted. We have seven items of doctrine and seven items of practice and then a a prayer in the centre which climbs right up to all the fullness of God and there we finish. Well now we looked at the first room and we call that the Munibut room because that contains the priceless documents. First of all the will of our father. So we are, we've got an inheritance in his will. 
And then the redemptive work of Christ, which sets us free so that we may enjoy it. And then the witness of the Spirit, which is the earnest of the seal while we are travelling home. And then you remember, the apostles stopped teaching, and he started praying. And that's not a very bad thing to do at any time. Because there's far more in any part of the Word of God than any of us can see by superficial reading. And even though we study it, study it for the remainder of our lives, and we accompany our study with prayer, we shall always admit that there are depths and heights that we haven't yet fathomed or scaled. So here's the Apostle, not only praying for these people, which he did continuously, but he was led by God to tell us the words of his prayer. So that the words of his prayer form an integral part of the epistle. And not only so, when we turn to Philippians, he's got a prayer in the first chapter there. And when we turn to Colossians, he's got a prayer in the first chapter there. So that we cannot avoid it if we would. That prayer has some place in the scheme of God with regard to the teaching of his people, particularly this calling. I remember having a letter many years ago from someone in the United States who had been reading some articles, and he said, when we read the Old Testament, when we read the Gospel according to Matthew, we've got the second coming of Christ, all in detail, we know the spot of earth, we know all sorts of details about it. Now he says, won't you come down flat-footed and tell us all the details about the coming of Christ for the church, which is the body? So I said, dear friend, I can't come down flat-footed, as you call it, because the Apostle Paul had He's only given me a few stray statements. And I've got to do a lot of meditating and praying over those to get them in their right focus. Uh, there was a silly saying years ago, uh, you may never have heard it of course, but I did. And it says, the higher you go, the fewer. And that's very true in many things in Scripture. The higher you go, the fewer there are that believe it, and the fewer details you'll get but a tremendous amount of principles that are left for you to distill in prayer in his presence. Well now, we looked at the first. We have a threefold basis for this prayer already in the first part of the chapter. Threefold. The will of the Father, the work of the Son, the witness of the Spirit. And now we have a threefold preparation. He says, I pray for you that you may be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation for the acknowledgement of him, not merely in the knowledge of him. And then we have the prayer itself, which is also threefold, a threefold prayer. I, I pray for you that you may know what is the hope, what is the riches, and what is the power. And of course he's expanding each one of those. Well that's before us this evening. What is the hope of his calling? If you look at chapter 4, we read, verse 1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation. That's the word calling. And when we come down to chapter 4 a little further, it says in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit even as you are called in one hope of your calling. Chapter 1 says, I want you to know his calling. 
Chapter 4 says, I want you to keep as a priceless treasure the hope of your calling. Now, do these differ? No, friends. For you'd have no calling at all if he didn't call you. It's only turning his calling over and seeing the other side. Two sides to the word calling. He calls, you respond. Well, if you respond, that's your calling. So he's speaking about exactly the same thing from two points of view. And he puts them in their right order. Not yours first. His. You want to know what is the hope of his calling? His calling of you. And when you've got that in its right place, you've got practically the lines that could be extended to include all the aspects of the truth that belong to the church of the one body. Let us not for a moment uh, forget that the... um, Hope has different aspects. So look back with you to the Acts of the Apostles just to gather a few points. In chapter 2, verse 12, the Acts of the Apostles. Um, No, I'm sorry, that's not the passage I mean. We, We go on to the last chapter I'm sorry, the last chapter of the Acts, where we get an emphasis on the word hope. The last chapter of the Acts, we find the Apostle saying, in verse 20, for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. For the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. And within a few months, practically, he wrote the epistle to the Ephesians, after he said those words. Right to the very end of the Acts of the Apostles, the hope of Israel was still, humanly speaking, possible. Then came the all-day conference. Then came the quoting of Isaiah 6 for the last time in Scripture. And then the salvation of God sent to the Gentiles. He became the prisoner of the Lord for you Gentiles. And the hope changes. It's no longer the hope of Israel. Israel have a hope, but it's suspended temporarily. And this is the hope of a new calling. The hope of your calling. It wouldn't do us any harm either to notice Colossians 1, 27 in connection with this word hope. In this chapter, he's dealing with the mystery and the fact that that, that there's a dispensation associated with it which has been granted to the Apostle Paul and that this was hidden from the ages and generations, verse 26, but now is made manifest to his saints. So now we are in the very moment when that which was hidden is manifested. Now verse 27 says, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among you, among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we've now got the word Christ, the hope of glory. We're still focusing our attention upon him. But you may miss some of the teaching here, if you don't realise that the word in, Christ in you, is the same word that we, which is already translated among the Gentiles. And it's put so in the margin. It is not Christ in you personally, dwelling in your heart by faith. No. He says the sheer fact that Christ is now preached among the Gentiles is the greatest evidence that a change has come 
that a new calling is in operation. And that preaching among the Gentiles gives them this blessed hope which is associated with heavenly places. Christ among you, it's the hope of glory. See, we take it so much for granted that Christ is preached in this chapel, or in this city, or in this land, or today. But they didn't take it for granted in the early Acts of the Apostles. It's extraordinary to think that when Peter was summing up his attitude to Cornelius and explaining it to an astonished little congregation at Jerusalem, he said, Who was I that I should forbid God? Now our version says, Withstand God. And I sort of smoothed it down a bit. But he actually uses the word forbid. Who am I that I should forbid God? Well, what would you want to forbid him for? Well, he wanted me to preach to a Gentile. You see, we take it for granted that everyone would be falling over one another to preach to a Gentile. Not so, says Peter. He said, if I hadn't had that vision three times over, I would have told Cornelius that he was common and unclean and I wouldn't have spoken to him. See, Christ preached among you. Why, it broke all these bounds. It started a new dispensation of itself. Christ among you, without any reference to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob or Israel. That's your pledge of the hope of glory, so don't let's minimise that. And then when you look at Titus, chapter 1, another phase of this question of the hope. Titus, chapter 1. Paul, the servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, we're still on this acknowledging coming in notice, in hope, or better still, resting upon hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but hath now, in, but hath in due times, manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto us, or to me, according to the commandment of God our Saviour. So there we have hope, of eternal life. And Timothy, 1st of Timothy, chapter 1, he speaks about this question of hope in relation to his ministry. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Saviour, and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. He doesn't say hope of life, or hope of eternal life, he says, Christ, which is our hope. And that's where we are. It's not merely what Christ has done, but what he is and where he is, that makes this hope so wonderful. Now, first of all, the Apostle has associated the hope with the word calling. And you may remember that in another passage, he definitely associates the word hope with the fulfilment of a promise. For instance, in Acts 26, when he says, Unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. Well, I ask you to keep this well in your mind. Do not use the word hope just by itself. Because that's not the way Scripture uses it, and it hasn't got very much sense. It's a sad thing to think that language deteriorates so, that if you speak to a person today who is unsaved, and you ask him if he's saved, he'll turn around and say, I hope so, and that means he isn't. But here we have this word, 
hope is not left like that in, with, a, with a ragged end, it's the hope of a calling. What does he know about a calling? Has he responded? Has the Lord called him? Has he acknowledged it? Of course not. Or what promise is he waiting for? Or expecting? Why well, he doesn't even know them, poor soul. So you see, it's not really hope in the abstract. Because I doubt whether you can have hope without hoping for something or hoping in somebody. Hope is, hope is the realisation of a calling which you now have or the fulfilment of a promise which has been made to you. Now that points you to the future. You have a calling now but you haven't realised it. This calling involves being blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places but you're not there. But what faith now entertains, hope is going to enter in reality. So I pass to one other passage in connection with this relationship <coughs> of faith and hope. And that is Hebrews 11. <coughs> Hebrews 11 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. And this word substance occurs once more in Hebrews and is translated person in chapter 1. So you see we've got a very strange word here. Uh, but, the Son of God is the express image of his unseen substance. The invisible God is expressed in Christ. That's the word substance. But here's something even more wonderful and nearer to us. In our own day, there has been discovered a wealth of ancient papyrus. Not, not portions of scripture necessarily, but letters written by a husband to a wife, or from a little child to his father and calling his father names because he didn't take him with him, or bills, receipts, taxes, and so on. And one of this set of papyrus is the record of a legal case, a law case, in which a widow is seeking justice with regard to property. And when they want to refer to the title deeds of that property, they refer every time to this word here substance. So that's what you must say. Faith is the title deeds of things hoped for. He said to them, he said, brethren, I've heard of your faith. I want you to now know that if you've got this faith which links you to the, to the Christ of the right hand of God, I'm even going to tell you presently that you're potentially seeking together with him. There. But you know full well you're not in reality. You're down here and you've got to watch your step. But that's where faith and hope are related. Faith is the title deeds of the property which is waiting for you. So you've got the earnest, you've got the, the you've got the uh, seal. You're waiting for the day of redemption. You've only got to get there in order to put in your claim, and it will be on it. What a blessed thing, isn't it, that we've got these wondrous words, so packed full of meaning. So I felt it was worthwhile letting these things have a place with us. Well, now we come a little closer to this passage. He says, I pray that the eyes of your understanding, or as uh, the revised text, the eyes of your heart being enlightened, hoping that that is so, I pray this, that you may know three things. What is the hope of his calling? Well, we pursue the teaching of this epistle, and as we gather the various things which are said about this company, 
For instance, at the end of this chapter, this church is called the, the body of Christ, the fullness of him that fitteth all in all. That's a part of the hope of his calling to reach that glorious position. So that as we go right through the epistle, we're accumulating all sorts of details that will build up the hope of his calling. But unless we do it, or unless you do it, you'll never be able to come down, as our friend said, flat-footed and give you a list of it. Oh, no, it's not put out like the Ten Commandments, thou shalt do this and thou shalt not do that. It's left, waiting for you to get all the joy out of it by patiently and prayerfully pondering. That you may know what is the hope of his calling. Again, Paul wrote about the hope in 1 Thessalonians 4. He wrote about the hope in Romans 15. <coughs> he spoke about the hope in other parts of his ministry. Now he's suddenly saying, oh, I'm praying that you may know what the hope is. Well, either he means to say that these Ephesians were very dull and they never read anything before, and yet he'd been there to Ephesus. He'd ministered to them. He'd spoken to them. Now he's saying, oh, I'm praying that you may know what is the hope of his calling, and that suggests that it's something new. He says, you've now got to associate what you think about the blessed hope with the calling you've received. And if, if you do that, you'll be lifted from the earth. You'll be even lifted above the heavenly Jerusalem. You'll be lifted to where Christ is. The hope of his calling is associated with where Christ is. So there are three spheres of blessing with a hope attached to each. And yet Christ is the only one they're waiting for, whether down there or up there, which of course is wonderful too. Now we get another prayer associated with it. And what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. He doesn't say, oh, what the inheritance will be. Oh, I know we're all have gone to know what it's going to be. He doesn't tell you. I think he, he couldn't tell us. Do you remember the Apostle Paul said once he was caught away? Our version says he was caught up to the third heaven, which makes us think of one, two, three stories like that. But there's no word up in it. He was caught away to the third heaven. One, two, three. The first is Genesis 1 verse 1. The second heaven is the one we know. And the third is the new heaven and the new earth which is coming afterwards. He said, I was caught away right now at the end of time. And I saw things and I heard things which it is not lawful to utter. So there are some things with regard to our calling and our hope that it's not possible to put in black and white or to speak about. For one thing, even though we were told, the explanation would have to be so vast that when it was all over, we shouldn't quite now understand its purport. What do we know about a spiritual existence? That is to say, a truly spiritual existence. All our associations here are related to the fact that we are living here as human beings, we have our five senses. Some people don't think we've got them all, but still, we have to take that for granted. We've got our five senses, and we know nothing in this life apart from the body we possess. The finest intellect, the greatest philosopher, he'll suddenly cease thinking, and if you, if you do it long enough, he'll cease living by just pinching his nostrils. The blood ceasing to flow to the brain for a few minutes and all your thoughts are gone. We are here, limited. Now, how are we going to explain to one another 
an existence where the body is not a limitation by that. Where we shall know without merely coming through the avenue of the eye or the ear or the hand. We don't know. So let's be prepared to be like the Queen of Sheba 10,000 times over. She said when she saw the glory of Solomon's kingdom, she said, Behold, the heart was not told me. But what you and I are going to say, I don't know. But morally certain that the scripture says, I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath it entered the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for them that love him. And then he adds a little bit afterwards, but he's revealed it unto us by his spirit. And that's what he's doing now. He's revealed something of it, but you've got to wait till you get there. So if you'd like to join in singing a hymn later on all to yourself or when you're going home, oh, what must it be to be there? That will give you a good idea of what begins to come into the heart and mind of those who meditate upon this hope of calling and this intelligence. So he doesn't tell you what the inheritance is. But he said, I would like you to think about the riches of the glory of it. You notice, these epistles are the epistles of riches, aren't they? When he speaks about our redemption, chapter 1, 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Riches of grace. Not merely grace, but riches of grace to deliver us and forgive us and set us free. And here we have in the next prayer the riches of glory. And then I notice in chapter 2, in verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches. Oh, a bit more. You know this word exceeding runs through this epistle to the Ephesians. Exceeding. A word that means exaggeration. If God weren't speaking the truth, we'd hardly believe it. He's going to show the exceeding riches of his grace. Well, we've tasted a little bit of the riches of his grace down here, friends. But we don't know what the exceeding riches of his grace could be, do we? That's another thing we're waiting for. And then he adds another word. It's one of those terrific changes from being right on the very mountaintop of experience or thought. The exceeding riches of his grace is swooped right down to the holy word, kindness. The last word he says is not glory and not grace, but the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us. So that's a character of our calling and a part of the glory of our hope. That if we've never been treated kindly in our lives, well, cheer our friends. Doesn't matter how long this life lasts, it's going to an end. And then God's prepared a welcome for you that will take your breath away. Exceeding kindness. So riches of glory are misinheritance in the saints. Now that as it stands is translatable. We can imagine that this riches of his glory, of the glory of his inheritance in the saints is very much like we were looking at verse 11. In verse 11 our version says, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance. But when we were dealing with that, I drew attention to the construction of the passage and the way in which this word is used in the Old Testament. And we discovered that it is used there not to obtain an inheritance, 
but to be taken for an inheritance. Instead of we getting the inheritance, this is revealing that God's going to have one too. Are we sad about that? We are not losing friends. I'm morally certain that if I'm going to be taken as a part of the Lord's inheritance, I shan't lose anything. In fact, that's what he did with Israel. <coughs> he gave to the twelve tribes each a portion in the land, but he didn't give the sons of Aaron a portion in the land at all. Would you say, oh, I suppose he was not treating them so well. Not treating them so well. They were the top. He said, oh, I haven't given you a portion in the land. I am your portion. So he, he didn't give them anything. Because he was going to give them so much more. So, the first statement is, not what your inheritance is, but what is his. He is going to take you as a part of his inheritance. I didn't know he wanted an inheritance, did you? But he seems as though he's gone out of his way through these ages to bring poor, wandering man, not nearly back, but so near to himself that he forms a very part of God's own joy, his inheritance. Now we have the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And we might say, well, that's exactly the same thing. But, if you will notice chapter 2, we read these words, verse 19. Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. Would you say that's easy enough? We are fellow citizens. These saints are fellow citizens. So we are fellow citizens with the saints. But the unfortunate thing is, the word with is not the right word. Anybody who knows the Greek language knows that this is what is called the genitive case and they are fellow citizens of the saints. What do you say? That doesn't sound quite... No, that's why the authorised version altered it. And nevertheless, the apostle didn't say with, he said of. Now, in what way can you be a fellow citizen of the saints? You can't imagine one saint being a fellow citizen of another saint. What do you say? What does it mean? Well, now we must pause for a moment and think about the language that we're dealing with. The actual words, or the actual word which is translated saint, is the word hagios. H-A-G-I-O-S. Now, in the ordinary way, the Greek language is so constructed that you can tell at once. Even though you mix the sentence up, you could tell at once whether a word was the subject of the sentence or the object, because it would have a little ending to it which would indicate it. But you mustn't do that with an English sentence. If John visited Peter, now you've got to keep John in his right place and Peter in his right place, but it wouldn't matter in the Greek, because John would have one ending and Peter would have another. So in the ordinary way, the person and the case and the number of any word is all indicated. But here's one exception. When I come to the genitive, plural, that is the word of the saints, of the saints, in the plural, and I look at the masculine and the feminine and the neuter, they're all the same. Tone hagio. <coughs> it doesn't matter whether it's a man or a woman or a thief. Just that one is, is not altered. Now then. 
That means to say that when we're reading the New Testament that we come across the word tone hagion, we mustn't jump to the conclusion it must mean a man. It might mean an angel. Well, so that's reasonable enough. Oh, but it might mean a place or a thing. And when we read Hebrews 9, we read about the holy places. We're dealing with the word Tohagion again. Now, we couldn't say that Christ entered into the saints or something, because we don't use the word saint of a place. We, we, we reserve the word saint for a person. But the Greek language uses the word saint for a person, or a place, or a thing. And it even refers to the angels. Saints, we don't call them saints. But it refers to his holy angels. Well now, this started off a new line of teaching. And I have here, rather now, it looks like an ancient document, doesn't it? <laughs> Some of you will recognise things to come. The magazine, which Dr. Bullinger edited for many years, and in 1909, he asked me to collaborate both with things to come and some of the spade work of the Companion Bible, and so I started a series of articles in things to come in 1909 called Dispensational Expositions. I would put dispensational in there, wouldn't I, of course. Well, here in this number, this is April 1910, so that's 55, 45 years ago, 45 years ago, I had an article called Tone Hagion or Heaven Itself. So you see, this has been in mind for a long time. Tone Hagion or Heaven Itself. Well, after going through all these passages about the most holy place, Dr. Bullinger added a Another column and a quarter. Column and a half. He said, Mr. Welsh's article is very suggestive and opens out a new understanding of heavenly places, variously spoken of by some as the heavenlies. You see, because what I'm coming to now is that when it says we have these blessings in heavenly places, or we have our uh, fellow, we are fellow citizens of the saints. This is referring to where Christ sits, at the right hand of God. Now the epistle to the Hebrews goes as far as this, that it shows you that Christ has entered into heaven itself. And it says heaven itself is the holy places, or the most holy place. Now there's not more than one, he's there. But where Hebrews stops is this, nobody else went in with him. Nobody else went in with him. I can imagine almost that Peter would have had a fit if they'd have told that anybody went in. Because it says the high priest alone once every year. It was reserved for the Apostle Paul not to take the most godly of the children of Israel into the holiest of all. It was reserved for the Apostle not needed to take a most godly Israelite and let him stand there that would have been a shock. But he took the outcast Gentile like you and me and he feeds us there. Well, that's something so stupendous that there are some who won't believe it to this day. But that's the position. In heaven's holiest of all, where Christ sits 
is the sphere of our blessing. So you can have your choice. You can say we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. You can say heavenly places are where Christ sits at the right hand of God. The right hand of God where Christ sits is heaven's holiest of all, or heaven itself. But you come to the same thing. So the, the church of the one body belongs to the innermost shrine of God's purpose. Now you come to Ephesians 2 again. When he's continuing this story, he says that this is growing into a holy temple. Verse 21. Now there are two words for a temple in use in the New Testament. One means the whole fabric of the temple, and one means the innermost shrine of the temple. Now which do you think is here? Well you're right. This isn't the whole fabric of the temple. This is right in the holiest of all, this word. The naos, right inside. So you see what I'm getting at is that when it says of the saints, of the saints, it's not merely of people. It's the place where this inheritance is to be enjoyed. Now we noticed in Ephesians 2 that there were fellow citizens. Supposing we now take a liberty for a moment and say they are fellow citizens of heaven's holiest of all. And turn to Philippians, chapter 3, and there we find, in verse 20, he says, For our conversation, now we're going to stop again, the word conversation here doesn't mean talking. It's deeper and richer than that. It's the Greek word polytuba, P-O-L-I-T, P-O-L-I-S, the word for a city. So we have politics, and we have London called the metropolis, the mother city. And then we have the word polite, because a person who dwelt in a city was supposed to have better manners than the man who lived in the suburbs, which means suburbs below the wall. But don't you say that today because the man who lives in the suburbs is supposed to be more polite than the man who lives right in the city, because he's only his caretaker. But that's our language shape. But it's all the word city. <coughs> the word freedom, which is freedom. The citizenship. So our citizenship, not conversation, our citizenship is in heaven. So if you're fellow citizens of the saints, you're fellow citizens of heaven's holiest of all, or heaven itself, where Christ is. It all comes to the same thing. Then look at Colossians. The epistle to the Colossians. <coughs> Chapter 1. Verse 12. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet or all sufficient to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints. Here again. The inheritance of heaven's holiest of all, not merely in light, but in the light. In the light, that light which is associated with the holiest of all of which the Old Testament called the Shekinah glory. That will come before us again later. Another feature which I think we must include in this reference to of the saints is in chapter 4 of Ephesians. 
chapter 4, our attention is directed to the ascended Christ. In verse 8, when he ascended, he gave gifts unto men, and those gifts are enumerated in verse 11. He gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. That's evidently a, a different order from those mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, because 1 Corinthians 12 goes out of its way to give them a number. It says, first apostles, secondly prophets, thirdly teachers. It says it twice, in case you missed it. One, two, three. Now this says, firstly, without saying the word apostles, secondly prophets, thirdly evangelists, fourthly pastors and teachers. So we've got a, a little different order. Now these apostles were never called by Christ while he walked the earth. If you go to the first reference to the twelve, you'll find them in Matthew 10. And their names are all given. Christ is here upon earth, walking the earth, and he called these twelve, and they became the apostles. Well, this is Christ who ascended, and he gave some apostles. Well, there must be a new order then. Because he doesn't really say he gave one apostle, that's the apostle Paul, he gave some apostles. A new order of apostles. Now, why were they given? Well, it says in verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints. <coughs> well, that's just, you may say, an ordinary ministry. But is it? Is it? He's speaking about this new order of apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers. This word perfecting is the word which is used in Matthew, the fourth chapter, of men who were sitting by the seaside mending their nets. Mending. Mending. It's the word that's used in Galatians chapter 6. Ye which are spiritual, restore such an one. And it's a word that was used by the medical writers of the time for resetting a fracture. Now friends, what had taken place at the end of the Acts of the Apostles? A terrific upheaval. The whole thing was transferred from earth to heaven itself, far above all. And a new ministry had to come in to readjust these things so that you may have your attention and your affection and all your thoughts now centred in the new sphere. So this was a sphere that was, was necessary. It should be a part of a ministry, the readjusting of the holiest of all for the work of the ministry and so on. Well, that more or less covers the many references that we have scattered through these epistles to this peculiar character. So we've looked at two of the items of this prayer. <coughs> what is the hope of his calling? What is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the holiest, or in heaven itself, in the holy place? And now he comes to verse 19, where he uses this word exceeding. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us, Lord, who believe. That's where, the, that's where we stop. Because it picks it up now in the next section, and carries it right through, as we shall see when we meet together next time. So the third item is power. There's a multiplication of power in this one verse, as you'll see. Exceeding greatness of his power, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought. Look at it, piling it on. 
You don't get to do the accumulation of words of power when God calls creation into existence. You'd imagine it, wouldn't you? But you know the scripture says, he spoke and it was done, just like that. But here, when it's contemplating the raising of Christ from the dead, it's the exceeding greatness of his power. Here's this word that means exaggeration again. But he's not telling us how Christ was raised from the dead any more than he tells us how we are. Because when somebody said to the Apostle Paul, how are the dead raised up? Well, Paul says, thou fool. And then told him, because we mustn't be so rude as that because we're not apostles. This is not telling us how Christ was raised from the dead. Oh no, it's telling us something, I was going to say not more wonderful, but very wonderful. It's telling us that the very faith we now exercise is associated with the mighty power which God used when he raised Christ from the dead. You'd hardly believe it were true when you think about shivering and shaking and trembling, would you? All the things that go to make up this present life, pushed here and shoved there and cow-cowing here, where we are associated with the power that raises the dead. So we have now these three items. What is the hope of his calling? What is the riches of his inheritance? What is the exceeding greatness of his power to us more to believe? And that's where we get the word pattern. As I need to remember, it started off in verse 1. The faith which is according to you. <coughs> and here we have <coughs> that which is according to you who believe. To us, Lord, who believe. So should we leave it there for the moment? This is where the Apostle has led us in his prayer. To contemplate as it were, three things which grow out of the first set. They don't sort of march together exactly. But in the first set, we have the will of the Father blessing us with all spiritual blessings and choosing us and giving us the high glory of the adoption, setting us in his sight without spot or wrinkle. And then we have the second where we have the redemptive work of the Son and the inheritance ours and his by virtue of that ransom. And then you have the witness of the Spirit, the seal and the earnest. And then the prayer says, the hope of his calling. Well, that was his calling when he put my name down before the foundation of the world. The riches of the glory of this inheritance in heaven's holiest of all I needed redemption to put me there. As the Apostle said in Colossians, he has made you meet, complete, all-sufficient for it. And then we have the last item, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. He says, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us, Lord, who believe? That's where we are now. We believe and we were sealed. We believe, and that is associated with the power that raised Christ from the dead. So when we meet together next time, we move on from the, the first half of verse 19 <coughs> to the section which covers the whole of chapter 1 to the end and into of after chapter 2. 
But that's another story. And we must now finish. And with grateful hearts, be glad to think that we have not been left in the Gentile world without Christ, without hope, and without God. But we could dare to take these precious things to ourselves. And we know the hand that offers them to us was once wounded.